we have been proud to play a part in that beginning, the disengagement between Israel and Egypt and later between Israel and Syria. And the part that the Secretary of State Kissinger and others from the United States played is one that we can be proud of. But now, as I go there, it will provide an opportunity to reaffirm support for the initiatives that have been undertaken, to explore ways that we can have new and better relations between the United States and each nation in the area, and also to explore ways in which those nations in the area may have better relations with each other and build toward the permanent and lasting and just and equitable peace that all of them we know want and certainly that we want. Welcome to the Nixon Now podcast. For the Richard Nixon Foundation, I'm your host, Jonathan Mavroides. That was President Nixon on June 10, 1974, just as he was about to embark on a five-country trip to the Middle East, visiting Egypt, Israel, Jordan, Syria, and Saudi Arabia, becoming the first president ever to do so. Here with us to talk about President Nixon's efforts at Middle East peace is one of the foremost experts on the subject, Ambassador Dennis Ross. Ambassador Ross was the lead negotiator on the Middle East peace process in the administrations of George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton. He's a distinguished fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and the author of several books, including his latest, Doomed to Succeed, the U.S.-Israeli Relationship from Truman to Obama. Ambassador Ross, welcome. Uh, nice to be with you. Thank you. Can you give a brief overview of what the Middle East looked like in January 1969 when Richard Nixon was inaugurated? In January 1969, um, you had... Uh, tension beginning to reemerge between the Israelis and the Egyptians. Uh, there had been a war in 1967 in which uh, Egypt had forced the UN uh, national, the, the UN emergency forces to leave the Sinai. Uh, we had done nothing about this, though we probably could have come up with different ways during the Johnson administration to at least impose some impediments to this. Once the Egyptians put six divisions into the Sinai and on the Israeli border and then closed the Straits of Tehran, a war was almost inevitable. Israel then went to war, uh, expelled the Egyptians from the Sinai, took the Golan Heights from Syria. Uh, and even though they had asked uh, King Hussein of Jordan not to enter the war, he did, feeling that uh, he would be doomed either way, that if, if Nasser were to win uh, and... Uh, and he would say of the war that Nasser would be able to unseat him. If Nasser were to lose, he would be blamed for the loss, and he'd also be put at risk. So he entered the war, and the Israelis ended up taking the West Bank of the Jordan. You did have a war of, of attrition beginning, uh, really uh, in it not quite yet uh, had begun in January 1969, but it was about to begin. Nasser just made a trip to to Moscow, uh, he was uh, he was getting resupplied by the Soviets in a very significant way, uh, and I think that uh, when President Nixon comes in, he's quite mindful that the Middle East, in his eyes, is very much a powder keg. He knows at the end of the '67 war, the Soviets had uh, threatened to come to the aid of the Syrians, and President Johnson actually had activated the uh, the hotline with Moscow, making it clear that uh, we would not countenance that. So that's that's kind of the landscape at the time of uh, of the administration coming into power. 
Was a Middle East peace plan high on the agenda when Nixon took office, or did other considerations? You know, you have Vietnam, you have the early steps of China, you have uh, arms control of the Soviet Union. Did, did those considerations take precedence? They really didn't, because Nixon is convinced that the 1967 war was one that served Soviet interests more than ours, even though Israel had defeated Soviet clients and destroyed massive amounts and captured massive amounts of Soviet equipment, the Soviets had very quickly uh, acted to resupply the Egyptians and the Syrians, number one. Uh, Number two, uh, many of the Arab states that were more radical and, uh, and who identified with Egypt and Syria had also broken relations with us. So Egypt broke relations with us, Syria broke relations with us, Iraq broke relations with us, the Sudan broke relations with us, and Yemen broke relations with us. Nixon felt that this was giving the Soviets a greater entree in the region, and he he feared that uh, that would that could weaken us in the overall competition with the Soviets. Uh, but he also worried that you could have another war in the Middle East, and he feared that that would bring with it a superpower confrontation. So he wanted to make this a very early priority, even though his National Security Advisor, Henry Kissinger, felt the time wasn't ripe for that. His Secretary of State, William Rogers, was very much a believer that we needed to push for something. And uh, for the first two years of the administration, Nixon pretty much gives Middle East policymaking to Secretary of State uh, Rogers. And and what was what was Secretary of State Rogers' plan for the Middle East? What was he trying to accomplish early on? He felt that uh, if we could cooperate with the Soviets, uh, because neither one of us really had a stake in a war there, and he felt that this could be if we if we could work with the Soviets uh, and get uh, our respective I'll use the word clients if we could get our respective client states to. Uh, to make moves towards each other, at least based on our respective pressure on each of them, that would be a way not only to defuse the conflict, but to uh, but to bring about some kind of settlement, some kind of an agreement. And so he was very much focused on the U.S. would put pressure on Israel, the Soviets would put pressure on on Egypt, and Egypt in particular, uh, and this would be the way you would begin to change things. One of the words you use in in, in your book is a, a comprehensive peace settlement or a, right. um, a you know comprehensive peace package. Could that could such a plan succeed um, given all the tension in the Middle East and 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 the and the geopolitics? Well, Kissinger is very dubious of this. Kissinger feels that the Rogers approach uh, has us pretty much negotiating with ourselves. He doesn't like the idea that we put pressure on the Israelis, but the Soviets simply reflect what the Egyptians want. Uh, He feels we shouldn't be delivering concessions from Israel to Soviet client states that the Soviets aren't themselves delivering. Kissinger wants a very different approach. He thinks a comprehensive uh, negotiation uh, isn't going to work, that the conditions in the region aren't ripe for it, uh, and that the last thing we should be doing is delivering concessions from an American friend that the Soviets will be the ones who gain the benefit from. He wants the Egyptians and the Syrians to see that their association with the Soviet Union is buying them nothing. And if they want anything to change with the Israelis, they have to come to us. So there's a real dissonance within the administration between what Rogers is trying to do and how Kissinger sees it. But for the first really two years of the administration, Nixon 
is relying more on Rogers because, in his own words, he feels that to create this new connection with some of these Arab states, uh, Kissinger's Jewishness will make that complicated. So he tends to bend towards Rogers until, as we see later in the administration, that in fact it's Kissinger who actually produces the changes. But early on in the administration, do you see the, some of the leadership from Arab states try to, trying to move towards um, a settlement through the United States? I mean, you see, you see a visit uh, from King Hussein of Jordan. You see the senior advisor to um, President Nasser uh, visit the United States and talk about how open he is to a, to a peace plan. Why didn't, why didn't any of those initiatives uh, pan out? One of the well, in the case of King Hussein, he's really at this stage he's much more of a follower than a leader. Nasser is sort of you know still sort of the pivot point within the region, uh, and and Nasser is sending signals, but basically what he sees is constant moves by the U.S. So he holds back. This is Kissinger believes, as I said earlier, that we're pretty much negotiating with ourselves. Uh, and the Russians are simply reflecting whatever it is that Nasser asked for. So these don't materialize because, in effect, we want Nasser to shift his posture. Nasser sees himself as the leader of a kind of progressive, anti-imperialist uh, bloc internationally, and for him to move towards us is to undercut his appeal within the region and throughout the third world. So given his self-image and what he's used to try to create a following, it doesn't make sense for him to embrace us. And that's Kissinger reads that correctly. Rogers, unfortunately, doesn't read it correctly. And what's going on with the relations between Israel and Syria at this time? I mean, or, or I'm sorry, Syria and the United States. You know, you see... You see Nasser and you see uh, the senior advisor to Nasser making some sort of communication with the United States. What's what's going on on the Syrian front? You're not you're not really seeing that from the Syrians. The Syrians uh, are literally changing regimes through coups about every 18 months, uh, and they're much more internally focused, uh, and they they view the Soviets as being their guarantor. Those who are competing for power see the Soviets as being their guarantor. And so there is no real impulse to to reach out towards the United States for the first couple of years of the administration. When Hafez al-Assad uh, comes to power through a coup uh, in the fall of 1970, uh, he is somewhat more open uh, towards the United States, but he doesn't really make his move towards the United States until after the 1973 war. Following the, the end of the Rogers plan, uh, Egypt and Israel enter what's called a war of attrition. Can, can you describe what that war of attrition uh, was in the early, 1970, early 1970? It does start in early... It actually start, The war of attrition actually starts uh, in, uh, in 1969, uh, and it follows um, trips that, that Nasser takes to, to Moscow. Basically, what the what the war attrition reflects is Nasser deciding that he has to raise the cost to the Israelis of occupying the Sinai. He can't be doing nothing. He's not prepared. Nasser has declared in uh, at the Khartoum summit in the summer of 1968, no to negotiations, no to recognition of Israel, and no to peace with Israel. So he's not going to pursue at this stage negotiations with the Israelis. 
but he wants to raise the cost of the Israelis of occupation, but he wants to do it in a way that also doesn't put his regime at risk. So he begins to uh, launch artillery attacks against the Israeli presence along the canal, and the Israelis pound away at the Egyptians and begin to try to raise the cost to them by not just hitting the, the sites that launched the attacks, but beginning to carry out uh, bombing raids against the Egyptian cities along the canal. Uh, and eventually they begin to strike the outskirts of, uh, of Cairo as a way of showing the powerlessness of Nasser to stop them from doing it. So he's trying to raise the cost to the Israelis of occupation. They're trying to show him the high cost of carrying out a war of attrition. Uh, and it ultimately leads the Egyptians to turn to the Soviets to come and provide a kind of air defense umbrella for them against the Israelis. You had mentioned the war in Jordan in the fall of 1970. Uh, what were the stakes and the main actors uh, involved in this war? It's you have the, the PLO has established itself. Uh, within Jordan, and they've almost become kind of a state within a state. Uh, and there comes a point uh, in September where the, 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 Palestinian, the Palestinian Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the PFLP, which is a constituent group within the PLO, uh, they hijack four aircraft, one to Cairo and three into the Jordanian desert. Uh, and for, uh, for King Hussein of Jordan, this is the last straw. Uh, and he basically tells us, tells the British, tells us uh, he's had it, um, and he's he's going to expel the PLO from Jordan, which he proceeds to do. His military makes a very quick work of them, kills thousands of Palestinians in the process. Uh, Syria, uh, at a certain point in this process, uh, invades with armor forces across the border, uh, and. King Hussein turns to us for assistance. You know, we actually end up turning to the Israelis to mobilize forces on the Golan Heights as a way of signaling Syria that they have a lot to lose if they continue what they're doing in Jordan. Uh, in the end, Hafez al-Assad, who's the commander of the Air Force, doesn't commit his air forces. The Jordanians are able to take care of the Syrian armor forces since they have no air cover. We have moved some forces, but we're still pretty much tied down in Vietnam. We've gone into Cambodia uh, in May, a couple months before. So one of the reasons we turn to the Israelis is because they have a capability there, and the Jordanians have actually come to us and asked, would we ask the Israelis uh, to do something? And that's, that is Black September in its aftermath. And what were the consequences of that war? What was the ultimate outcome? Well, one of the most important things that it does is it it actually has an American client or state associated with us, Jordan, defeating a Syrian or Soviet proxy or client state. And it has it does strongly affect the perception of the United States. In the fall of 1969, when there's a, a coup, Gaddafi replaces King Idris in Libya, every single one of the uh, leaders of Arab states and even also Iran with the Shah send messages to us alarmed that we seem to be passive in the face of radicals uh, gaining power. Uh, we have a large air force base there that, we're, that we are forced to lose, we're forced to, to leave. Uh, 
called Wheelis Air Force Base, and there's a perception that somehow the radicals are gaining, American friends are losing, and the United States isn't doing anything about it. And every one of the leaders sends a message to President Nixon to that effect. With the aftermath of Black September, the image is that somehow the U.S. was able to orchestrate this in a way without even actually having to use our own power directly, but we orchestrated an outcome, and it, sh- it began to show American effectiveness again, and it, it changed the image of the U.S. and the Nixon administration in the region. Nasser dies in 1970, and his vice president, Anwar Sadat, takes the reins of leadership. How did Anwar Sadat differ from Gamal Abdel Nasser uh, in his leadership um, style in Egypt? Well, what's interesting is Nasser was actually, he was his vice president. Sadat was Nasser's vice president. Everybody referred to Sadat as Nasser's poodle. Uh, He was seen as not having any real standing or any real um, credibility on his own, and he surprises people. Uh, He is is determined to get back Egyptian land. Um, He is not going to let others... In the uh, in the region, define what Egypt can do. Uh, he is more focused on Egypt itself. Nasser throughout was always focused on uh, on the region as a whole, uh, and Sadat thinks Egypt does better by taking care of its own needs, and he's prepared to take certain initiatives, at least on the peace issue uh, up front. Eventually, they get frustrated because he, you know, he he's prepared to make certain moves they're they're really not reciprocated by the Israelis uh and he goes to war in 73 beginning believing that uh he can change the status quo uh by going to war and in fact he succeeds in doing so one of the major things he does is he expels soviet advisors um he does. and he and he removes um their tutelage can you describe how this how this process came about? Well, he, you know, he, in 1971, he first removes um, those within the Egyptian leadership, like Ali Sabri, who is a vice president, uh, who are seen as very much representatives of the Soviets in the Egyptian hierarchy. Uh, He basically removes all those who have a connection to the Soviets. Uh, And then in July of 1972, he actually expels the Soviets. He he says that after the summit, uh, when Brezhnev comes to uh, San Clemente, that the the statement that is issued shows the Soviets are not going to do anything while the U.S. continues to back the Israelis. He's critical of us for backing the Israelis, but he's more critical of the Soviets for creating the image that they're a friend when, in fact, they're not prepared to do anything to, to help uh, end what is the Israeli occupation of Egyptian territory. So he expels the Soviets, and he quietly reaches out to us uh, because he he increasingly is of the view that if he's going to affect the Israelis, he has to do it through uh, through the United States. Now, at the time when he's reaching out, this is at a time when when we are the administration is completely consumed trying to end the Vietnam War. Uh, you know, you've had summits with both the Chinese and the Soviets, uh, and uh, and Kissinger, at least, uh, has is prepared to work with this channel, but he doesn't actually have a meeting until 1973. He's, he is focused on other things and still 
feels he needs to do those those captures attention much more than than uh, this issue. Did Sadat ever try to reach out to the Israeli leadership during this period of time? He doesn't do it at this time. Um, that will come. Uh, he, I mean, there are. I mean, there are rumors to the effect. I mean, there's that there's been some. There are some connections, but he's not. He's not really making a direct effort to reach out to the Israelis. He is making the effort instead to work through us to get to the Israelis. And how does the how does the Nixon administration ultimately reevaluate re uh, their Middle East policy at this point? What's interesting there's a, an interesting kind of dissonance here, I would say, between the president and uh, and Kissinger. Kissinger doesn't think the conditions are ripe. Still, I mean, he is the fact that that Sadat has. Uh, expelled the Soviets is very important. There were 15,000 Soviet troops in Egypt, and he's expelled them. One of the reasons he ex expels them is because the Soviets have begun to take on sort of the air of an occupying power. And so when he makes his decision to expel the Soviets, it's quite popular within Egypt. And part of the reason he does it is, I think, for the domestic political payoff. Uh, but Kissinger, as I said, is sort of preoccupied with other things. Nixon writes in his diary uh, that he thinks that, you know, Kissinger is hesitant to do more because he thinks he's going to come under a lot of pressure from within the Jewish community if he's trying to do too much at this point when the Israelis are not really willing to do much. Uh, and Nixon thinks that we need to to become more active, and he's going to press Kissinger to do that. This he writes uh, early in '73, in the beginning of the second term. But it isn't. But you had you. It's the point of view of American activism begins really with the with the '73 war. And let, let's get to the 73 war. Did Golda Meir or anybody in the Israeli leadership get the sense that Sadat was trying to break the status quo and would ultimately make some sort of attack on uh, Israeli soil? No, I think they misread that. I think they were completely surprised. They they were convinced that you know the the 67 war had demonstrated how decisively they. Uh, had a major advantage militarily, and that the and that Sadat understood this, and so a lot of what he was his public commentary that talked about a year of decision, uh, the exercises that were run uh, in the spring of '73, they just weren't taken seriously, and the Israelis were surprised. They were convinced that their dominance was was in a sense uh, irreversible, and uh, and they misread what was going on with Sadat. What were the what were the losses like on the Israeli side after the invasion? They're profound. I mean, in the first week, the Israelis had uh, 800 tanks either destroyed or out of commission, uh, and you know, 70 aircraft uh, in the same position. That was a colossal set of losses for the Israelis, not in material, but obviously in manpower as well. Now they recoup uh, after the first week. They do recoup and. In a kind of a remarkable degree of of their capacity to adjust on the fly, uh, having totally miscalculated and having not read correctly the doctrinal changes and some of the training changes, so the way the the Egyptians were using uh, their SAM missiles to provide cover and also Sagar anti tank missiles, uh, the Israelis basically adjusted their their tactics to account for this and were able to turn the tide of the war. For the first week of the war, we withhold any meaningful assistance to the Israelis, even though they're increasingly they're becoming more desperate for it. Uh, we do it because 
the President Kissinger believed that if there's a stalemate, we can actually launch meaningful diplomacy and negotiations and they can lead somewhere. But it's not going to work if there isn't a stalemate. And, there, and we, too, are convinced that the Israelis have this kind of military dominance and, and we don't want them to win too decisively. Well, in the course of the first week, it ends up being a surprise both to the Israelis and to us about the improvement in the, uh, uh, in the especially the Egyptian, also the Syrian, but especially the Egyptian military performance. The uh, President Nixon and the Nixon administration ultimately uh, provide material, war material, and supplies. Uh, how did that? How did that affect the the outcome? It's transformative. The Israelis had turned the tide by the time the material came, but they, you know, they at one point they stopped. They had stopped their advance uh, in Syria because they were short of ammunition. Uh, the scope of the resupply by uh, the administration is nothing short of extraordinary. Uh, basically, the president gives the instruction, everything, fly everything we have to get stuff over there. Uh, and through air and sea uh, transport, we provide uh, a colossal amount of military material to the Israelis, $2.2 billion worth of material at that time. Uh, and there's no question that one of the reasons the Israelis are able not just to go to where they go, they, they stop 25 kilometers from Damascus, but they're able in the Sinai, they're not only, they're, they're able basically to um, circumvent a presence that, is, that the Egyptians have dug in by uh, flanking them and crossing the canal and going on the road towards Cairo. Uh, and they're able actually to surround the Third Army, and they're in a position to basically to kill the Third Army, which would be a devastation for Sadat. And we, as much as anything, we also stop them from doing that. And how does this, how does this war uh, ultimately end? Is there diplomacy? Is there uh, more gridlock? Well, there is diplomacy. There's a, a Kissinger goes to Moscow, um, and when he goes to Moscow, uh, he basically reaches an understanding with the Soviets. He hasn't talked to the Israelis about it. The Israelis are not happy when he flies to Israel from Moscow because there's there's going to be a, a, a Security Council resolution. There's going to be a ceasefire that's going to be declared in 12 hours, ceasefire in place. And the Israelis want to finish what is the vice they have on the Third Army. Uh, and uh, they don't want things to end until, uh, until they have that locked down. And Kissinger tells them, well, they can, they, you know, they don't have to stop until he lands in in Washington, which is longer than the 12 hours. I mean, he has, he has it's 12 hours from the time he gets to Israel. Um, but what happens is the Israelis, when the Israelis stop at the, at a, at basically at the appointed hour, at least after when he lands in Washington, the Egyptians try to break out of the encirclement that they're in, the Third Army is in, and every time they try to break out, the Israelis not only stop it, but improve their position. And so the Soviets are becoming more and more desperate, and eventually the Soviets threaten to intervene unilaterally, and this is what leads to the president declaring a, a DEFCON 3, a raising of our global alert, uh, to counter what the Soviets are doing. And that's, at that point, the ceasefire, we, we put enormous pressure on the Israelis, and they do stop. And the ceasefire holds, and uh, it's uh, Kissinger works to establish some understandings, which are their kilometer 101 talks, where they're for the first time Egyptian and Israeli generals meet. 
they work out terms to ease the, the siege of the Egyptian Third Army. Kissinger, by the end of the year, uh, is asked to begin a shuttle diplomacy, which he does. It leads to the first disengagement of eventually there are two Egyptian-Israeli disengagement agreements in the Sinai, and there's one disengagement agreement uh, with the Syrians and the Israelis. And Kissinger is the one who produces those. He also restores basically diplomatic relations between Egypt and the United States and Syria and the United States. One of the consequences of the war is the um, Arab-imposed oil embargo. How did the how did the administration respond? The Nixon administration respond uh, to these events. Well, it's interesting that uh, Kissinger said we would be very tough uh, on on the Arabs if they that we wouldn't engage in diplomacy if they if they maintain the oil embargo and and in fact they did and we did. Um, we do get the oil embargo lifted in March, but it's mostly because the Saudis decide who are really the drivers of it, they decide that they've gotten the benefits out of it that they're going to get, and that, in fact, the larger oil market may be affected quite negatively. Uh, and they, they see themselves as sort of being the, the pivot to the oil market, and they want they want a market that serves their interests, not one that potentially undercuts their interests. If, you know, if it produces, if prices go too high and they create a recession in the, in the West, which and the rest of the world, which then dampens the demand for their oil. When the when they declare the embargo, um, they say they're not going to lift it until Israel has withdrawn to the June 467 lines. But of course, they withdraw it in March, uh, and they don't respond to Sutt when he asks them to lift it in January. But they do respond in March, which is two months prior to the time that uh, Kissinger launches his shuttle uh, between Syria and Israel. Uh, and and Assad has asked the Saudis not to lift the embargo until after his negotiations have been completed, but the Saudis don't listen to that either. So they're really driven more by what are their own needs. They want to they want to gain greater control over not just the oil market but also downstream operations. They use to gain control of Aramco. Uh, so they have multiple reasons why they they do the embargo. They use the war as kind of a pretext. But once they've done it, they never they never again apply an oil embargo because I think they they realize that if they politicize it in certain ways, it could be used against them. And you write a, you talk about this in the book. You talk about the introduction of petrodollars and and the Saudis' capacity to produce oil uh, at a lower pl- at a lower price. Um, how did this change our our pivot in the in the Persian Gulf? Um, we, were, we were at once uh, pretty close to the Shah of Iran. Did the Saudis become much more prominent? It is interesting that um, the Saudis do become more prominent as a result, although the Shah remains very important to us. And to some extent, one of the reasons that the Saudis end the embargo when they do is because they're worried that the Shah is going to undercut them uh, in the oil market. So I wouldn't say that it, it, the, the change in the relationship with the Saudis becomes more prominent really, I think, later on. You see more that becomes more prominent, I think, in, during the Ford administration, uh, after, um, you know, after President Nixon has left. And uh, last question: What uh, what can we learn from the uh, Nixon administration's Middle East policy? Are there are there uh, indelible messages to be learned from the events of the seventy three war in nineteen seventy and and uh, the administration's overall approach to diplomacy in that region? Well, I think there were. I think 
A couple points stand out. One is Nixon followed in the tradition of Eisenhower, at least initially, feeling that if we distance from Israel, we would gain with the Arabs. And and the Nixon administration, I mean, Nixon did that, Eisenhower did it, Carter would do it, uh, Bush 41 did it, and Obama did it. And in each administration, the distance from Israel, expecting gains with the Arabs, they never got it. And part of the reason was the priority of the Arabs really wasn't our relationship with Israel. The priority of the Arabs was who were their competitors in the region and was the U.S. reliable in terms of standing by them and making commitments to them. Uh, and, you know, the other interesting element was Sadat draws closer to us, uh, not when we distance from Israel, but because we use our relationship with Israel. Uh, and that, too, is a kind of interesting lesson. Uh, it was our influence on Israel that actually created more influence with Arab states like Egypt. Uh, and that was another lesson, I think, that sort of stands out from this period. Uh, and overall, this notion that when you're addressing what matters to the Arabs, they'll be more responsive to us, that's very much the case with Kissinger, uh, with both Egypt uh, and Syria. Uh, and I think that is also a lesson that one sees in, uh, in other administrations as well. Ambassador Ross, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. For news and information about the life and legacy of President Nixon, please visit us at nixonfoundation.org. For the Richard Nixon Foundation, I'm Jonathan Mavroidis signing off.